G'day and welcome to Radio Notes. I'm John Murch, the producer and host of. Our feature guest this week is Christopher Sprake. We'll be hearing from him in just a moment about family, life, music, and it's an extended chat at that. It was recorded back in June of 2018, and he's currently on tour as we release in the middle of a North Hemisphere tour, which by all reports is going fantastically well. An engaging album was released post our chat, and it's called East Coast Low. The last week or so has been pretty full on at my end as I've been dealing not so much with the verdict of Cardinal George Pell being sentenced for pedophilia and then to jail, but more of the fact at the same time I was hearing that, a face looking back to me from the Snowtown murders. One of the murderers was on the front page with his middle finger extended from the day that he was sentenced to multiple life sentences. That's the same day that he was looking out of the dispatch box, I guess you would call it, into the audience of family and friends that he'd murdered. And I was sitting in the middle of it, and he looked straight at me and gave me a deathly stare that still keeps me up at night. So I was dealing with that, the Pell verdict in my ear, and then of course later in the week we hear about the Australian who murdered in New Zealand. 50 people shot down, murdered in Christchurch. It has been one of those weeks. And whilst I probably should be giving you a light, happy, joyful interview, we're getting some pretty serious issues in our feature chat today as well, but hopefully you'll find some value in it. And please, uh, if you do, make sure you tell other people. And also you can contact the podcast, which is released on a Sunday first and then broadcast on AM, FM and digital radio, radio notes at writeme.com. Going to give a miss of In The Box this week so we can dive straight into our feature chat. Christopher Sprake has recently released East Coast Low and completed an extensive Canadian tour for it. The release touches on stories and observations from experiences working with at-risk persons. Sprake is also a producer at Last Match Recording Studio. Part of Radio Notes Melbourne tour, Christopher invited John into his home for a chat. Christopher, welcome to Radio Notes. Thanks, John. Can you firstly touch on the, the new release and what that's meant to actually now finally get the band record out? First thing that's really evident with this record for us is that it really shows the progression of us meeting as a group of friends uh, who were originally playing my songs as a songwriter um, and then moving towards writing together uh, and having this sort of backwards and forwards songwriting process with the music that takes a lot more time. So a song that kicks off the record, like Made Ghost, is is very much my songwriting brought to the band with the structure pretty much complete and then the the music filled out by the band. Whereas by the time you get to the, the end of the album with songs like Ring and Small Folk, it's very much writing together while I still contribute to the music it's, it's a collaborative process writing the actual music so narratively speaking are you happy with the stories that you've shared on it uh yeah i mean i, I think there's uh i guess as my is my style that um trying to work in personal stories with uh, larger social issues or, or using uh, relationship stories to discuss um, social issues that sort of where we've often come from, or I've, I've often come from. When you do that, Christopher, that, that very much feels like a breaking down of the personal, let's call it private, the private and the public aspect of living. Do you have a conscious 
desire to do that, to, to make the uh, personal in some way through songwriting become more public and the public to be more personal? That division um, is how a lot of social issues come up, that uh, people segregate themselves into sections of society and they think that they're not involved with the outcomes of social issues or they don't have a responsibility for um, a social issue. And so hopefully when you're telling a story from a personal point of view, you can um, smuggle in some ideas about um, equality and shared human experiences possibly it's preaching to the choir um, in the style of music we do but um, hopefully some of the songs um, say a song like Updraft which is slightly about my own relationship uh, being sort of in limbo and uh, has a large section about um, refugee friends uh, having to experience detention and not knowing if if or when they'd ever be uh, released into back into the real life Mm -hmm. Uh, for want of a better phrase. Some people that resonates uh, well and um, for other people it's always just going to be a love song. (laughs) If the music is about preaching to the converted, is there a sense of frustration or is that a challenge for you to make the music broader but within your own style of music? Uh, It's definitely something we've been conscious of. Even now as we're well into writing the second album, we're critiquing ourselves a lot more heavily and thinking about how music can impact other people and not just be for our own enjoyment. On the next album there'll probably be less eight minute progressive pieces and probably more yeah, shorter form uh, songs with bigger moments of hopefully uplifting uh, ideas and music. That is something that we've, we've thought about that what is the line between um, art and doing something that you love for yourself uh, and also getting ideas out to other people. The voice of the protester has been less listened to over the last decade or so, it feels, through music. But there is another narrative which you seem to be taking on board that isn't so much about the protest, but about the education thereof. As many people have probably said before me, you have to give the human face of the things that you're concerned about. You have to make that resonate with people so that they realise that have a shared human experience with someone who's being marginalised. And I think at the moment there's a lot of people in the arts community and and in community work that are pretty much at that point of fatigue that we've seen a a large lurch to the right with politics and we feel like we're saying the same things over and over and over um, and that that nothing changes. If, If anything as we see money being taken away from community and arts projects, there's less funding. Um, So the same people trying to make the same impact and uh, trying to uh, make changes in the community uh, have less resources um, and stretched even thinner. Um, While there are a lot of people who are very hopeful, there's also that fatigue of trying to say the same thing over and over. Has the wind been taken out of collectivism then? or has been taken over by the more right elements? Um, I think there's probably an, an element of that. Um, I think a lot of people... It's that fine line between self-interest and being able to stay dedicated to um, to a cause. So I know that in the community sector, a lot of people love the work that they do, but if they suddenly see that the 
state or federal funding has dropped and their role takes them down to three days a week and they potentially can't survive on three days a week, then obviously they, they have to look for something else, which leads to a high rotation of staff in these community projects and those core relationships that, that make the changes um, in communities they turn over more quickly, which is quite frustrating. Christopher, this is a good point to pick up back to the music and what you're doing within the community sector with music and those members of various communities to, I guess, get their stories heard as well. Mm. What kind of rewards has that brought you on a personal and possibly professional level? There's been a lot of great outcomes. I I guess just quickly, my background uh, for the last probably four, four and a half years more directly has been that um, my recording studio has been on uh, public housing estates in Melbourne, so um, originally Collingwood and then the last three and a half years in Richmond. So these are some of the most disadvantaged and diverse communities um, in, in Melbourne. The Richmond site is within a minute's walk of the largest drug dealing site in Victoria and within view of the new um, injecting rooms that will be established, uh, have been established. And so it is a, is a diverse and challenging environment. For me, going into that environment, it's been about identifying the potential in people who have no backing or resources and then trying to get their, their voices heard and give them, give them a chance to... Um, explore their talents and their potentials so that's been a whole range of uh, different projects Um, we've run uh, many music events and festivals um, on the the housing estates of Collingwood and Richmond one of the most successful we even managed to uh, get funding to let off fireworks um, above the Richmond housing estate which for me was an amazing moment, having African refugee women saying that this was the first time they'd ever seen fireworks in real life, kind of incredible. But uh, by the same token, events like that, I would be standing toe-to-toe with drug dealers who were essentially telling us that this was their turf and they needed to get out of you know, the public spaces. So we'd have uh, an indie folk singer meters from one of the big drug dealing sites and um we'd happen to be be having to face off with drug dealers while they're performing for other people so Mm -hmm. it's definitely a a place of contrasts the the biggest ongoing project uh, and the one that we've sort of found the most successful was working with at-risk african youth have a project uh, called rich beats that evolved to two nights a week uh, doing hip-hop fake focused um, songwriting and, and music production uh, and that grew to encompass um, 30 regular participants these young people some of them were coming to develop their skills and for a little bit of uh, I guess entertainment after school but for uh, other other people involved we're talking about people that have um, experiences of family violence uh, they might be first or second generation refugees they obviously have experienced uh, racial profiling and, and prejudice. and So they will come in, work on their the hip-hop and their rap tracks. And this can range from something that's really just a, um, a process of building up their ego. Um, so it starts off in the most um, uh, sort of cliched hip-hop uh, parlance. But then as people get... Um, positive feedback they start to think about their place in society and reflect on um, how that they can interact with that and so the the writing actually can take a bit more of a, a social focus do you feel 
during that time you've steered people away from drugs or at least given them a decent alternative? It sounds like you have. There's a bit of gallows humour for a lot of the community workers that you, you uh, often say you've just kept people off drugs for another six months. But I definitely think that for a lot of these people, it's about feeling that someone believes in them and then having the chance to see their potential reflected back at them. Where did that come for you, Christopher? Where did you decide, was it a very young age, that being in that environment, being in that line of work, was going to be the key? Like for my own story, growing up in the 70s and 80s as an artistic, sensitive um, male, Mm. um, I experienced a lot of bullying and prejudice uh, on the assumptions that people made about um, me not fitting into gender norms, what my sexuality might possibly be. Um, and even just looking different. So I grew up in a fairly conservative part of, of Melbourne, and so uh, yeah, a lot of the the expected um, ideas about masculinity were, were just things that I was never gonna I was never gonna be the footballer. Mm-hmm. I was never gonna be the standover bully. I, yeah, I was never gonna fulfil all those things that uh, at that point were the expected norms. Um, and I think. In some part, you know, I guess a psychoanalyst would say that I'm still that disenchanted and frustrated teenager trying to, you know, make a, a difference in society and let people be themselves. Or, or maybe I'm still kicking back against all of that stuff that I grew up with. Um, but there's a point where that was you, but you decide to then go into a career, a line of work that was giving back to what was similar or close to what you were experiencing. Mm. Yeah, that, no, that's true. And, and maybe rather than being an activist for a certain cause, being a community development worker was always uh, closer to where I was headed because rather than taking one line on one issue, it's trying to bring people together uh, and, and f- uh, show them where their similarities and their human connections are rather than their differences. Mm-hmm. Did you find that is and continues to be some sort of strength in difference though in binding difference as a strength uh yeah i think um the diversity uh, obviously diversity is very important and personally i feel safer around diversity but i, I think uh, there's that duality in, in trying to show people that they can be themselves and then getting people to experience diversity around them and embrace it and support it so in the same way that they are embraced for who they are and their unique uh, contribution to society that they can identify it in other people uh, and then enhance that as well which is tricky when did music for you then play a part when did that start being a thing that was important to you because as long as I can remember I probably started first making music on piano when I was young um didn't follow that as much as I probably should have, uh, really just from the perspective of um, when you're a kid being uh, hit with a ruler on the fingers when you get the notes wrong, it doesn't encourage yeah. you to stay with Yeah, that's what you should have kids. <laughs> from a young age, I was listening to, to the radio and taping my favourite songs off the radio. I was into piracy already. And yeah, and in my teenage years, like a lot of people, you start to try and make sense of the world by creating your own music and and writing your own songs. Yeah, I guess that really became part of my identity, trying to create sounds. Did the idea of songwriting come earlier or later in that piece? Because I have a feeling that would have been key to the expression, so when did that sort of sit in? 
Yeah, I, I think probably by the time I was 15 or 16, I was thinking about writing in some form. A lot of the music that I was listening to was very sound-based rather than um, structure-based. So all those sort of post-punk new wave bands like the Banshees and um, The Cure and Simple Minds and U2 and all that sort of ilk. There was a lot of experimentation in um, what guitar and keyboard could sound like. Um, so at that point, that was probably as important for setting the sonic picture of where the lyrics would go. It was probably later that, um, yeah, being more self-critiquing about lyrics uh, became important. If you look at the diversity, let's just pick one record, the record, the Glove record, for example. So if you look at the diversity of that particular album, were you starting to see and feel things listening to an album possibly like that at the time that you would do in later life? Were you taking note or just experiencing? Uh, I don't think it was that conscious back then. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, as, yeah, as a teenager, I was probably very much just straight into the emotions, straight into the the reaction. But yeah, probably by the time I was in my late teens, um, I was already you know recording on a four track like probably every you know, every kid was at that age. And, um, so you're starting to think, how can I make that sound? How do they do that? Um, and so the production side of things, you know, eventually sort of. Um, came through Pro- probably it's probably one of my failings even now that I'm still largely all about heart and the technical side of things is driven by wanting that connection so I, I wouldn't call myself a naturally gifted technical musician or someone that thinks technically or, or started out thinking technically about music production but all of that was driven by wanting to be able to make the sounds right did that make the genre of shoegazing, for example, more appealing to you, that it was more about the heart than the play? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, and even um, I, I probably bypassed things like grunge because I felt like it was too derivative back to, uh, say, um, heavy rock or hard rock. Um, so even electronic music, I found those expressions of music and sound and atmosphere more engaging. And... I guess with shoegaze, one of the, the big things was always the almost unintended crossovers where the sound was just so wild um, that you weren't quite sure how all these things would interact and um, yeah, and, and make sounds that were engaging and uh, mystifying, maybe. <laughs> so it was like the next challenge. So once you'd done the four tracks, was it a case of then figuring out how they did this? Definitely not a four-track approach, That's really. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that, that layering... You know, is, is still something that, that's amazing. And probably with a band like Hidden Currents, we're being more aware now that we maybe need to strip things back um, and focus on being just a five-piece rather than a studio band. So, yeah. Hidden Currents is the current band of Christus Sprague, who is our very special guest. And I do want to ask you about your recording studio, Last Match Recordings, not just a home for your own work, but of others as well. When did you decide that you needed a recording studio? What was the match spark? Um, I mean, I'd always had a small recording setup for myself, uh, even when I was just recording as a solo artist. The the real uh, impetus was brought along when I had kids. And so up until that point, really my life had been a day job working in healthcare. So I had healthcare worker and uh, nurse. And when the kids came along, I just thought, well, maybe I'll try doing the you know, the sort of medium-sized budget home studio. 
and I'll run all the studio hours around looking after the kids. It took about six months for the transition to happen, and since then, that's the only the work I've really done. So mm-hmm. uh, that was really the spark, I guess. But you at least have um, a home for that sound to be produced, and mm-hmm. is there much of a future in that, or is is there other focuses now? I look for myself. There'll be um, there'll be different focuses in the future. This is the eleventh year I've been running a recording studio, and I love sound, but the the time demands of also being um, a single parent and being in a band that um, are still wanting to go out and tour and work. As much as you often hear people say, oh, if I had my own studio, I'd be in there all the time. Um, and it's true, you, you are in there all the time, but most of the time you're working on other people's uh, music. It's not always a glamorous thing to be in a soundproofed, darkened environment for you know eight to 12 hours a day for days on end. So I do feel... You know, very fortunate that I've been able to do it for so long, especially in an age when digital technology is sort of you know, making the future of recording studios questionable. But yeah, for myself, um, looking to running a venue with a recording studio and a, a live music component sort of my future, I'd say. Yeah. You mentioned the single parent, so let's talk about some joy there. What is the joy of being a single parent? For someone like myself, it's just seeing your kids become themselves. As a parent, I'm very much focused on supporting them in in what they want to do um when they ask for answers i generally give them a variety of answers that they can think about rather than this is what you should do and just seeing yeah them find their joy in life and then work towards something yeah it was rough back then and you said that we're lurching to the right a little earlier so so how do you feel about the future Uh, i think there's Maybe as a lot of people are saying, I think socially it's probably going to get worse for a while. I guess that's from me being more progressive and left worse. (laughs) Is that a case of not getting what you might want? That's right. Yeah, I should qualify that. I I guess I'm, I'm hopeful that society at large can shift in its values. So at least as a society, we're progressive and embracing difference. The thing is, Christopher, you've got the next generation in your hands. You're giving them a number of different answers you said just then. So you have a little piece of the pie to play towards that. I certainly give them information. I avoid saying, this is what you should think. But let's say with the the most uh, recent sort of social uh, issue that came up large for Australia was the marriage equality vote. So talking with my kids about it, I didn't really say either way mm-hmm. um, even though I obviously have strong ideas about it myself I'll just point out this is what um, some politicians think about it this is what other politicians think about it this is what people at large think about it so when you're delivering an idea that like that to my kids like uh, my daughter uh, saying well these politicians think that people who are the same gender shouldn't be allowed to get married so my daughter's response to that was just well, that's stupid, isn't it? That's just mean. And so without having indoctrination of certain ideas, people just get to react. So my, my kids get to react and then we can have discussions about those kind of ideas. Mm-hmm. They see the way I live. They see the way I've prioritised um, art and people and community in my life. And there's lots of things to, to discuss with them about that. But they also are coming up in this new generation where their superheroes are YouTube 
games players or you know they create funny video content um, providers so it is a different landscape and obviously the, the finances of living in a big city like Melbourne will they ever own property do they need to does that change ideas about security yeah the mechanics of it all can be scary there's lots of contrasting ideas and I guess my from my own point of view taking one ideology and just sticking to it um, really breaks down down the debate over the worth of the worth of the ideas in that so even though I see myself as progressive and left I don't think that um, the left is beyond reproach or um, introspection in how they approach their ideas. You mentioned about focusing, uh, putting your focus on music, arts and community very clearly. Was there a point that you made a conscious decision that that would be what you would do? Did you go through some sort of high school, university and go, no, this this is what I'm going to do now? When I did my my nursing, it was like a training program. So that's the only sort of formal education I, I have other than high school. I'm generally not the kind of person, as I was saying earlier, that is led directly intellectually so my heart generally leads and then my head goes back to do the research so I I wouldn't say that there was a clear moment where I decided that all these things were going to define my life but as my heart sort of led towards looking after other people being a nurse working in the community the experience of my own being bullied uh, and marginalized because I was different in the time that I was growing up. I think they're all factors. Uh, I mean, even in one of my earlier jobs, I was unfairly dismissed because someone assumed that I was gay. Um, so there, there have been little moments like that all along that probably led towards that. A stark reminder for people that it wasn't actually that long ago. We are talking years, not decades. Mm ago that levels of discrimination for which people think never occurred Mm. occurred quietly on a frequent basis how do you resolve that or have you been able to resolve that within yourself and has music been a part of that or is there some other element of Christopher that says no this is how I'm going to get through that I would have to say that music and songwriting is the way I try and process everything that goes on in my life so I don't keep a diary but um, you know I have song notebooks and that's something that I do regularly. Um, it's a very selective process, isn't it? A diary could be a spill of the spleen where songs are more concise, aren't they? When you write, write down those ideas, even at the first stage, are they... Maybe not concise. I would generally start out with a few lines that, would, that I think are strong and then I just fill the page with ideas and there'll be arrows drawn here and there trying to pull everything I together. imagine there's some beautiful comebacks as well, like five weeks after someone said something to you as well. <laughs> that's maybe that's how that's it a, always is. Maybe that's a little vengeful. I, 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 can't, I can't think of it at the moment, but um, yeah, I'll have the perfect comeback yeah, later right. when I'm alone at home. The writing process, I guess, is, is my way of processing. Um, but, but I guess also having developed a lot of community programs, you're, you're trying to think about how other people can um, be given a voice and be showcased and, and that also brings issues back to the fore in um, a more public way in society. I'm going to take you back standing, you're organising an acoustic session in a housing estate area 
and you've got the drug dealer standing next to you pretty much trying to push you out of the way possibly in in their space. You're talking about an outside public space that is essentially the back garden for for 3,000 people that live on the estate. Um, If they want to have a safe performance of music, the people that live there have got a right to that. In the same way the kids have got a right to play basketball or yeah, ride sure. their bikes around. There's a very good chance that you'll become a target. There's a good chance that you could you get hit, as has happened. But at the same time, you're trying to fight that perception that drug dealers or other forces at work mm-hmm. actually own these spaces. They belong to the people that live on the estate and they should be able to engage with those spaces um, without that fear. Do you have any hope for them to change by you being in that space? There are people there you can help, but these individuals? Um, it's certainly a complex environment. Um, and it would be fair to say that if you're growing up in that environment and you see a community worker who's going to be earning 30 35 bucks an hour or you see the drug dealers who are driving around in their Mercedes-Benz or BMWs, mm. what is a more realistic and, and attractive... Aspirational. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so having hope, um, I don't know. Um, these, my observation has been that these things move in waves, that you'll have a few years where a lot of great social change will come through and you'll have a lot of the stakeholders engaged. So there'll be state government, local government, um, federal funding, uh, lots of different agencies working together, and they will make a difference. I want to pick you up on that point of the BMW versus the 35 an hour. Mm. Not to be too personalised about it, but you also mentioned that you work from the heart. Surely the communication of the heart is way stronger than the callous coldness of uh, corporatisation of the BMW. Of the drug dealer? Uh, I guess it depends on how those things are projected to the community and, and essentially to the people living those in, in those estates as well. So mm-hmm. if your heroes are hip-hop stars um, with all the trappings, uh, the gold chains and the cars and the women, mm-hmm. and you've got people modelling something close to that lifestyle, that, that's a big thing to be kicking back against. Going back to the, the moving in waves, so mm-hmm. I... I I saw a few years of amazing changes and then in the last year to 18 months we've seen uh, three different service providers in Richmond disappear because the funding disappeared. So that meant that a homework club uh, and a couple of other organisations that were always available and were situated on the estate are gone. So from around the middle of uh, last year, if you're a kid living on the Richmond housing estate, you could play basketball, you could do drama with my best mate, or you could do hip-hop recording with me. Uh, hopefully, we're at that point in the cycle where things swing, swing back the other way, but um, yeah, that's sort of been my experience of it. Because what you're saying, as bleak as it is, is if you're your mate, the others aren't in that space, then it will just get filled in by those that are willing to pedal. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Having a chat with Christopher Sprague from Hidden Currents, he also has things he does by himself. We're finding out a little bit more about him and what he does. What's your overseas travels been like? The last uh, overseas trip did a recording with um, Canadian musician and 
producer Jim Bryson. I, I really enjoyed it. That. Probably the most enjoyable thing was not being behind the desk. You'll note that he's smiling in that voice. <laughs> Jim Bryson was his hero during these times. <laughs> and still is Jim if you listen to this. I think finding other producers that are able to put their ego aside and embrace the music is really important to me. There's another local Melbourne producer I work with occasionally, uh, Marty Brown, and he's a uh, sort of a similar mindset. Uh, Marty playing in um, Art of Fighting, or a uh, Melbourne-based band. Um, well, and an outstanding band. Correct. Um, so that was your connection to Marty Brown, was Art of Fighting? Uh, originally, yeah. yeah okay. yep. And so we've, we've done some drum sessions together, and when I want, want an objective um, set of ears that I can trust, I go and um, review mixes with Marty. But yeah, so similar um, sort of approach with, with Jim that he's very good at finding the space in songs. He's very good at knowing what a song does and doesn't need. I suffer from adding things when um, I'm not sure about a song, whereas Jim was very much able to take my songs and just put my voice up the front and then construct around that. So yeah, so that was, that was my last trip and I did a, a little bit of travelling around with Jim while we were there, yeah. also plays with a, an artist called O Susanna. So that was a great experience as well, going to Toronto for rehearsals and then uh, playing an outdoor festival or seeing them play. And it was also inspiring just from the, the fact that you've got people who are middle-aged with children who are still just loving what they're doing and embracing it and taking their kids along for the ride. Do you think you'll be doing that again for your releases to, to head overseas? Envisage that at some point in the future it will happen. Was it an inspiration for writing while you were there or was it very much the recording of what you had and the tourist factor? We made some slight changes to the lyrics, really just in, I guess, as a review of it all, but mostly it was trying to capture the music and, and a bit of the tourism <coughs> side of things as well. Um, I'd, I'd been to Canada before, but I'd mostly been on um, the other side, like Vancouver and Edmonton. I've always Loved Canada, so, yeah. How much of your relationships, your personal relationships, end up on your recordings? There's often uh, an initial spark of a conversation or something that happens and that, that'll end up as the catalyst for the song and then something will grow around that. So, Is that the rebut thing again? being in a situation where you're more comfortable a few days later in the, the songwriting process? I think some of it's the rebuttal, but there's also the element of this person was right in what they said about me. Um, and so you, you're exploring your failings and your frailties as much as you're exploring um, the failings of people in relationships in general. Is that hard to do? Betting that question with the fact that being bullied at a younger age, that you already may have felt like you were wrong. And that might be a default position. I mean, I think that can swing both ways. Always having to feel like you're right. And you're always having to you know, prove that you're right. But, but yeah, there's, there's definitely that, um, that aspect that you're, you're questioning yourself. Questioning your worth. I recently watched the amazing Hannah Gatsby special, Nanette. When she's talking about doing self-deprecating humour and linking that back to growing up continuously being told that you're not good enough or you're not what you're meant to be and then you end up and you're 40 and you're still apologizing in a self-deprecating way mm -hmm. for being on stage uh, certainly you know a lot of the guys 
in the band, like we love music and we think that what we're doing is really worthwhile, but we're also, we're not hip hop stars trying to promote ourselves. We're not saying this is the best thing you'll ever listen to. And, mm-hmm. um, and there's probably an element of that that is either that we're still trying to reconcile that idea of having self-worth or that society has told us for so long that we're outsiders that it's hard to believe that people out there are actually going to take an interest. So I think I think that moment has a um, yeah a lot of resonance for a lot of people that yeah once again if you've if you've grown up being told that for a long time um, getting to a point where you can accept your own worth and deliver it to people around you and it not and not being apologetic about it it's a tricky thing. What do you do to give yourself self worth? I hope that my contribution to the world around me makes things better for other people, whether that's my kids or my community or people that engage with the music. Um, that that would probably be it in a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. What elements from that giving reward you the most? I think... Other people being able to be themselves and feel reassured in who they are themselves. So with the music, that's when, when people you know, resonate with the music or with the song. One of the things that like, uh, I was kind of surprised by on the recent shows, um, we, we have a song on the new album uh, called What You Left Me, which is really about... Um, what is left for men in Australian society um, once you've told them these are the things that are acceptable. And for, for someone like myself, it's, it's not much. But at the, uh, the shows with Hidden Currents, that was the song that people were, were singing along to. That's what, um, to see men in their 30s screaming at the lyrics back at you was com- like really unexpected. I, for myself, I felt that that song was quite personal and quite confronting and I didn't expect it to I thought people would probably sort of either wash over it or it'd be too much society's expectation man when you made that comment you did there it, it's not the masculine aggression yeah. side it's not the taking control of these aspects yeah uh, so we've got all these things that we're comfortable with men doing they're fairly limiting we're comfortable with the sports hero. We're comfortable with the loud alpha male. We're more comfortable with the idea that guys uh, might use porn than if they are actually emotional and want to talk about their feelings. Um, and, and that's something you know I've, I've experienced myself, that people are confronted when you get teary about an issue or a song or a piece of art. Or if you want to read poetry and talk about why this is important but at the same time if you open up a lad's mag that's totally acceptable in your own realm yep and and, and maybe even in wider society it's uh, yeah. people are more comfortable and so yeah so the idea of what you left me is like well these are the things that you're comfortable with me doing but it's not who i am i guess also commenting on society and saying well when men go slightly beyond the the, the bounds of these things they get reprimanded slightly but you're still more comfortable with those things in general. How are you working through that? 
uh, writing songs where I scream. <laughs> I guess for all the discussion of it, um, I'm relatively comfortable with who I am in myself. But the question then, Christopher, is what would you like society to do? So if you're giving, which you are, music, you're, you're being part of the community, what would you like society to do in return to make you feel more accepted within? I guess it's just... Um, we need to think about the, the idea of strength because we have very cliched ideas about what strength is, especially combined with masculinity. So if you want to talk about something that's emotional, you want to be able to cry, you want to be able to express love, you shouldn't be shot down. You should be encouraged. And I think we're still a long way from that, especially in Australian society. And there's a complexity to it. I don't know if social media and a short news cycle, all of these things that compete for our attention move us away from having a longer narrative about a lot of issues. How do you give a nuanced, complex answer to something in, what, 15 seconds mm. of a YouTube video? I, for, for myself, I still have to commit to the things that I'm hopefully good at, and that's music and, and art and trying to smuggle through ideas. What poetry are you reading at the moment? Oh, my favourite collection is called... The Rag and Bone Shop of the Heart. That was a collection curated by having a men's group in a city in America reading out loud. And they chose the pieces that had the most visible impact on the participants while they were being read out loud. So uh, it wasn't to do with the technical part of the writing. They were interested in the emotional impact in a live setting. And that's divided up into a whole section of different sections of ideas. But even that has ideas about masculinity and fragility. and So that's one of my, my favourite collections. When do you get a chance to have those conversations, you yourself, with other men? I'm lucky that between the band and a few close male friends, we do um, have a few quiet ones and put those ideas out. I definitely feel lucky that the, uh, the members of Hidden Currents are all sort of that same mindset that we, we don't shoot each other down for the emotional, which is fortunate considering <laughs> we make music together. But. but what you're possibly asking for as society is general to find some time for that conversation to happen more broadly across gender. Uh, look, that would be great. I probably don't have that in a personal way. I've facilitated a lot of events through the community that have had those kind of aspects to them um, without being directly involved in the art side of things myself mm. um, creating a, a platform for other people but that said my life uh, for the last four or five years has been incredibly busy something you know, I'm lucky if I'm getting uh, one or two nights a week where I'm not out um, or with kids for that matter I also reflect on we have had male voices for a long long time so when we've run community events it's given us the chance to to have uh, queer events which embrace all kinds of art and music and poetry or um, we have uh, community-based events that provide uh, st a stage for people from all different backgrounds, refugee backgrounds um, and 
those voices need to be heard as well. So um, even though I might not be directly involved in the art process, uh, supporting an event where um, a young refugee woman gets to stand up and to a large crowd, give poetry using a defiant line like my life will not be an open casket Mm. um those moments are are incredible and they resonate with me and they feed me but it's also just you know waking up to yourself sometimes that men don't have to be the center certainly middle-aged white men like myself don't have to be the center as long as you can be part of the change when you're trying to provide a stage for other people I think that's a... so not be part of but get something from correct yeah yeah um, so those things feed me um, without me having to be the center which you know hopefully more men can learn you have a strong sense of family do you find that a challenge sometimes to hold on give everything you can it just makes life very busy I think trying to keep that perspective trying to keep and, and I think when you say family I would have to think extended family yeah. includes you know my close friends and community and, and the band but yeah certainly with with kids they're always the priority and even though you know my life is very busy I generally get to juggle my time so that I'm there for them because I was thinking more parentage grandparentage that that kind of place where you might have got your education before as a uh, younger person I spent a lot of time uh, at my grandmother's and I I learned a lot about cooking and she was post-war so saving on everything watching her scrape the last little scarics of jam from the jam jar and and making bread bread and butter pudding from all the leftover crust and things like that so that definitely had a a formative effect even from uh, a young age with my parents being at work so by the time I was probably grade five I was cooking dinner a couple of nights a week for my brother and sister so early on there's that kind of aspect to it but there's also as most teenagers go through um, not so much the rebellious years but when you're trying to define your character and you're you're not fitting in with what your conservative parents would expect of you then your family also becomes about yeah your, your friends who are around you at that point and sneaking out to the city on the train and going to gigs and yeah, trying to find your tribe at that point, I guess. Yeah. It's very much a rock quiz question, but in the context of this, I don't feel too ashamed and I've acknowledged them, so that's fine where, where the idea is coming from. The first record you bought with your own cash? I don't remember exactly. It was either U2's Under a Blood Red Sky or Tears for Fears songs from the big chair. It would have been one of those two, I'd say. First money. <laughs> and both of those continue to have a narrative into your later years, not just when you purchase it? Um, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I, I used to love U2. I haven't, probably haven't listened to them much for the last 20 years or so, but I think when they were at their experimental stages... They're probably the most interesting. Tears for Fears, I don't know. I probably haven't listened to them for, you know, since everybody wants to rule the world. But, but hopefully melody and experimentation have stuck with me, hopefully. Hidden Currents is the band that you're with, they're the lads that you're hanging with and, mm-hmm. and doing your thing. The new recordings will be out in the next year or two? or uh, Yeah, so we've got the album that's out at the moment. Um, but at the moment we're hoping that um, a new single 
hoping to get it together by November. Mm-hmm. Uh, You're lucky enough to get a couple of cuts, including Updraft on vinyl. We, we couldn't manage to get um, the whole album on vinyl because we realised it was too long. Yeah. Um, so it would have had to be a double. We, we didn't think we could shell out for that this time around. But yeah, so we're hoping that um, we'll have a new single out in November. We're keen to get back out to um, at least Sydney and Brisbane, mm-hmm. hopefully Adelaide this time as well. And there's also a discussion of trying to set up overseas shows for next year. Uh, so a bit of long-term planning. Yeah. Which brings the question a bit further than that. The 10-year plan for Christmas break itself, what's your 10-year plan? The kids will be um, hitting teenagehood by then. Correct. Yeah, obviously teenage years I'll be around a lot, but um, I, mean, I would hope that the band keeps going as long as we want to keep going. We're all sort of enjoying it at this point. I'm still working on solo records that I'll hopefully tour as well. And uh, yeah, hopefully having a new venue and recording space up and... Um, being able to accommodate the kids into all of that as well. And this will be one with the cafe as well, so very Melbourne. Yeah, that's right, very Melbourne. Hopefully finding a space that... I guess one of the, the benefits of the, the last uh, four or five years, uh, having community spaces has been able to... being able to run events um, and draw people into joint experiences, and I'd be hoping to do the same kind of thing at the, the next venue. So. Is there an itch of collaboration within that? Or just having gigs that are quite diverse? Um, I'm happy to let other people take the stage for, for that kind of stuff. But, I mean, I, I love working with other people. Um, probably the, the other artist that I've collaborated with the most is um, Steve Roach, who's an Americana singer-songwriter. So I've always been happy to sort of produce and his new album, whenever that's finally out, um, I play all lead guitar on that one. But I guess between doing a solo project and playing in a band they're probably the main ways my creative time gets spent Christopher Sprake, absolute pleasure thanks for doing Radio Notes thanks John, cheers Christopher Sprake, latest solo album East Coast Low they have also released music with indie band Hidden Currents more information on them at christophersprake.com just having a listen back with you of that interview back from June 2018 as part of the Melbourne tour and uh, Christopher Sprague, not just a great singer-songwriter, producer, but also a community activist in his field and also giving us a bit of an insight and some interesting thoughts. I just have a feeling, as he was saying, things have to get worse before they get better. And I think over the next fortnight, if not before the uh, next few months, we're going to get a real sense of that right taking a hold of their field and uh, digging their heels in so to speak. We'll see how things go. He mentioned Oh Susanna there, and they have their 20th anniversary album reissue, or it's a vinyl release is the important part, as part of Record Store Day. Very much looking forward to hearing the quality of that release, and it is out very, very soon. Record Store Day is Saturday, April the 13th. In fact, if you've got a particular release you are keen as mustard to get as part of Record Store Day and want to share why, Radio Notes at writeme.com. I've got a few that are on my radar, but I'm not chomping at the bit like I normally am, which is a bit sad because the ambassador is Kate Sobrano this year and Russell Morris is going to be announced in the next few days as a new ambassador for the Australian Record Store Day as well. Thanks again to Christopher Sprake, and if you can catch him live, please do so, or at the very least, pick up one of his recordings.
Time now to go off the charts. Let's pull the curtains open on the Australian Recording Industry Association charts on the Australian Artist Albums. Number one is The Great Expanse from the Hilltop Hoods, jumping a position to get that number one spot. Number two is The Love Monster by Amy Shark. And at number three, The Best of Cold Chisel, All For You. In at number three for its 233rd week. Last week at number three, there was a strong independent female artist. Where are they this week? Beware of the Dogs by Stella Donnelly has gone down to number 19 from number three. Now, is that because of pre-sales? Can it return? Let's hope so. And uh, Kylie Minogue from 7 to 15. The Wiggles from 15 up to 14. And the other Hilltop Hoods album, The Drinking from the Sun, Walking Under the Stars Restrung, is sitting pretty and stable at number 13. And the brand new one of interest, which I can't understand why it's not higher. Number eight, we've got the very best of In Excess. That's in at number eight for the 304th week. But brand new at number nine is Dan Sultan's Avery Takes. That's brand new, straight in at number nine on the Australian Artist Album Chart. Give a shout out to Willosophy, Will Anderson has interviewed Dan Sultan just before a major incident in his life. And then recently, there's two interviews with Dan Sultan, and you can find those on a podcast called Willosophy. Hannah Gatsby, in the last few days before this episode came out, premiered in South Australia as she does all her shows, a brand new one called Douglas. In fact, I first saw her back in 2006-2007, and the only show I haven't seen live from her is something called Nanette, very popular I hear. And this is the follow-up to it, or at least is the new show after she said she was going to give up comedy. What I can tell you from seeing the show is it's well-researched, it's topical, and it is classic Gadsby. So if you get a chance to see it, then well do so. Thanks very much to Christopher Sprake for being our special guest this week. You can find him on the socials and, of course, see him live as he tours his latest record. And in the coming weeks, in fact, next episode, if you're following along chronologically, we'll have Rufus Wainwright's keyboardist of his latest tour, Rachel Eckroth. And I'll also have a sneaking little bit of Laura Imbruglia for you. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 